Broadcasting live from Baltimore, Maryland, the Breath of Life Ministries presents Experience the Power. When God gets ready, He can deliver you. If you call on Him, if you trust in Him, be worthy of the Let's go live to the Miracle Temple Worship Center, where our service is in progress. I want to uh, let you know that this is one of the most beautiful sermons that I think I preach, but it's the most difficult one to do. Because I don't know what you're going to feel, but every time, every time I see him, when I see what he did for me I can barely take it so pray that I get through the sermon but pray more that God will show us his son again would you pray with me father in heaven today we would see Jesus we recognize that he no longer hangs on a cross Today, Jesus ministers as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. He's there when we pray. He's there when we have needs. He's there to forgive our sins. But today, we want to see him as he shed his blood for us. So as we open the word of God, let the spirit be with us. Let us be guided into all truth. And I pray, Father, that as I determine to speak the truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, that every heart will recognize the truth and be changed by it. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is important, I believe, to know why Jesus died. I am not angry at uh, that motion picture that got everybody's mind focused again on Jesus. I sat there and... Uh, saw a few places where I would have done things differently but since I didn't have the discretionary funds I couldn't make the movie I tell you what I don't think it takes a movie to see it I believe God has arranged it so that if you understand why he died and that my friends is my burden today not just that he died I think all of us are impressed with the pain that he suffered. But if it was for nothing, if 
if it was something he brought upon himself as I hear some theologians even say then what was it for but I dare to differ with them I believe that the central act of all eternity will be the death of Jesus on Calvary because it was not for him but for me that Jesus died and the first reason I suggest to you is found in Revelation chapter 20 some of you know that we go through texts fairly quickly I have these just about memorized but I'll find a few with you Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6 it says blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years the Bible speaks about the second death suggesting that there is a first death the first death is the kind of death that we see every day the second death is eternal death for those who refuse Jesus blood and its saving qualities so the first death is the result of sin many of us will die it does not mean that we are dying without Christ in fact I'm happy to announce today that you can live in Christ and die in Christ and if you die in Christ it's asleep it's asleep because you wake up when you hear the voice of Jesus those who are in their graves those who have come to know the name of Jesus and understand what the voice of Jesus sounds like will hear his voice in the tomb nobody else can be heard in the tomb the living know that they shall die the dead know not anything their love their hatred is perished they have not the power to hear until the life giver calls and when Jesus calls even people who are dead will hear his voice and will rise the same angel that ushered them to their graves will wait for them as they rise up in the power of divinity and will take them to meet with their Lord I love the thought of it what do you say but there is a second death people who die the second death will be resurrected quickly and die again at the brightness of his coming and I suggest to you that the first reason that I want to share with you that Jesus died was so that I could avoid the second death so today I I know that I might die the first death and I'm not afraid I've already been in situations where I thought it was about to come I shared one with you I I remember one time my wife and I were driving on a little narrow road in the in the country it was slippery and wet we only had our daughter then she was standing between us on the front seat of the car another car came out of its lane ran into that big Buick we were driving ripped it off at the firewall another car hit us from the back I remembered that there was a chasm over to the right I thought the second car would push us over and all I had time to say was Lord help us when that car stopped glass was everywhere I remember that I had a big afro hairstyle in those days I was quite proud of it part of the car had touched my hair part of the car had touched my leg my wife had just a tiny nick on her leg our child our daughter was sitting between us glass all over us but nothing had touched us 
God is able. But in that moment before we were safe, I thought, if I must go, I want to just call on Jesus one more time. Because if I die in him, I'll rise again. If Christ had not died, every one of us would be susceptible not only to the first death, but to the second. I tell you today that we have hope because Jesus died on Calvary. Then we also have proof that the ceremonial law is ended. We talked about how cumbersome they were. There were laws that said you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. You could only carry something about equal to a handkerchief. You couldn't do certain things. And even when you did what was lawful on the Sabbath, there would be somebody there to criticize you. Jesus came into conflict with these laws because he healed the sick on the Sabbath. That's proper for the Sabbath. Somebody today ought to take time to go visit someone. You ought to bring light to someone's life. You ought to tell them about the Jesus of the Sabbath. But the fact is that under the weight of those ceremonial laws, the Sabbath had become a burden. You had to sit there and think about what you could do and what you couldn't do. You couldn't have the joy of the Sabbath. And I tell you that God has created the Sabbath as a delight. In fact, if you delight yourself in the Lord on the Sabbath, he will give you a particular brand of joy. There is a joy in communing with Jesus on the Sabbath that nobody else can have except those who believe what he says and then he will magnify your joy. So I'm not talking about the east to west ubiquitous smiles that people have on commercials. I'm not talking about people trying to make themselves happy. I'm talking about the joy that springs up from inside when you know that God is in your life, that Jesus is the one who governs your activities. And when you can walk with him and talk with him, then you understand the joy of the Sabbath. But those laws also said that when I sinned, I had to take a sacrifice to the priest or to the temple. The priest would sometimes cut the lamb's throat or eventually even the sinner would cut the lamb's throat. Jesus understood and so every symbol in the ceremonial law pointed forward to the real sacrifice. One day when Jesus finally went to the cross, the priest was still there at the temple, knife in hand, a lamb about to die. But when Jesus declared, it is done, it is accomplished, the priest's hand began to tremble. The knife fell. The lamb leaped from that place and scampered away because the real lamb of God had gone to the cross. So in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, you will read that, that there were laws that were nailed to Jesus' cross. It was not the Ten Commandments. The Bible says they last forever. They are holy, just, and good they are the perfect law of liberty they last forever till heaven and earth pass away one dotting of an eye or crossing of a t will not pass from the law of god until all is accomplished so it was the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross the law that deuteronomy 31 24 says that moses wrote with his own hand the bible says that the ten commandments were written by the finger of God.
Well, let me pause just a moment to say this. One of my favorite preachers pointed out that, that when Jesus writes law, he writes it in stone. I'm writing backwards. It's Hebrew. <laughs> Only the finger of Jesus could write in stone. So when Jesus writes law, he writes it in stone. But one day there was a group that came to accuse a woman caught in adultery. On that day, Jesus wrote on the floor of the temple in dust. He wrote the unconfessed sins of those who had brought this woman. And when he had finished writing, they had all gone. So today, I declare to you that when Jesus writes law, he writes it in stone so you can't forget it. But even if he were to write your sin, he would only write it in dust. So that when you confess them and forsake them, he can say, blow them away. That's the power of my Jesus. So Jesus goes to the cross so that I can enjoy the Sabbath. And I do. If you see me on a Sabbath and wonder why I'm happy, it's because I'm told to be happy. The Sabbath brings joy. It's a delight. And I thank God for it. I have an extra 52 vacation days per year. Huh? So if you haven't had a vacation, recognize God's holy Sabbath. You get 52 vacation days and they come just in time. Just as you are about to go slowly out of your mind. The Sabbath comes. It's not a time to go to sleep and stay asleep. It's time to commune with God. And the only question you need to ask on the Sabbath is, does it honor God? And if it honors God, then it's worthy of doing on God's holy Sabbath. Then Jesus went to the cross to show that the commandments are forever binding. There are some people who think that Jesus did away with law. And my question is simple. If he did away with law, why did he die? If law was expunged, then Jesus need never have come to the earth. If I knew what heaven looked like completely and had lived there, why would I choose to come here? not a bad place in some spaces some of you live in very nice houses write me a note invite me over <laughs> I know how to behave myself in nice houses but I'll tell you already your house is nothing compared to God's house <laughs> I don't care where you live your house is nothing compared to the house you're gonna have when God takes you to his place where there are resting places, dwelling places that are permanently mine. In fact, one of the beauties of my home there will be that you can't take it away. No taxes, no mortgage, no rental payments. <laughs> so, so if he came, and let's, let's, let's go quickly. I, I need to look these up, but let me move. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 4 says, The soul that sinneth, shall die the greatest lie that satan ever told was the one he said disguised as a snake 
He said to Eve, you shall not surely die. God had said, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. If you do away with the last part, pardon me, if you do away with the first part of that text, wages of sin is death, you don't need the last part, gift of God, eternal life. If there is no law, if there is no death for sin, then why do you need Jesus to give you eternal life? You already have it. I suggest to you by deductive reasoning, this text proves that the law is still standing. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17, he says, I came to establish the law. So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but not by throwing out the rule book. He came to shed his blood, for in his blood there is power to remit sin. So the death on Calvary establishes that the law of God is still binding. The law is there. Then somebody says, does God really love me if he allows me to work under law? And my answer is real simple. God had to have rules. The problem today is that we live in a lawless society. I don't want to talk about people in our parking lot right here. I don't want to talk long. But it's amazing to me how some people are very law-abiding until they want to get close. At your home you have a treadmill. You bought it so you could walk. But then you get to a place like this and you don't want to walk anymore. You want to park just beside the door. So people become lawless. They fly into parking spaces when they see somebody else coming, rushing to hear the word of God. <laughs> Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. I need to read this one. It's powerful. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Here's what the Bible says. But God commendeth his love towards us, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fact is that while you were still a gleam in your father's eye before you were born, Jesus knew that you would be born a sinner, but he died for you anyway. So he proves his love that he keeps rules, but that he dies for us so that we can be set free by his blood. Then someone says, how about this? If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, and I believe he does, then God knew before man was created that man would sin and that the wages of sin would be death so why would God make us in the first place if he knew we would sin and be guilty and punishable by death? Isaiah chapter 53 is where I'd like to take you because I posit to you today that Isaiah 53 proves that we will be in better shape after sin and Christ than we were before. Isaiah chapter 53 
And uh, why don't we start reading at about verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So whatever sin inflicts upon us, whatever the death penalty might have inside of it, Jesus, by his sacrificial death on Calvary, takes it all away. In fact, I believe that he not only takes it away, but places us in a new position so that no longer are we just servants of God, but we are adopted by faith into the family of God. When we surrender our lives, when we are born again, we are not born back into the same family with all of the same family traits. But now we are born into the family of God. So Jesus becomes my elder brother. And I am no longer just a servant. But I am now in the family. In fact, my record is not worthy to get me into heaven. But Jesus wipes my record clean and puts his there. Because all of my righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So I have his record instead of mine then in ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 you must know that there is another gift ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says this in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace there is no reason why anybody in the family ought to carry sin because our redemption has been accomplished through the death of Christ on Calvary. Now once you understand, in fact, Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 22 asks, is there no bomb in Gilead? <laughs> is there no medication for my disease? I've got a disease that the physicians don't quite comprehend because it's not a physiological disease. It is a disease in my soul. It was sown there, both by my genetics and my acculturation. I am born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It came through my Punit Square. It came through my family tree. But it also came by how I live. And the question is, can you find a medicine that will take that away? And according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, Almost all things are by blood cleansed. Almost all things. And without blood, there is no remission. I tell you today that I was born with the cancer of sin. And I hope that there's some cancer survivor listening to me because I, I thank God for what's happening in your life. I'm glad that God has power over cancer. I'm glad that God has power over physical diseases. And you are happy to hear that word remission. But listen, 
Jesus also has power over sin. And when you take into your life the blood of Jesus, there's power in the blood. And blood, the blood of Jesus, puts my sin into remission. I praise God for it. Now let me share with you, if you will, what the American Medical Association was inclined to do. I was shocked when I saw it because this, this august group of physicians rarely looks at anything in the religious realm. It's too risky. But I picked up an article sent to me by a friend, a friend who knew that if I saw it, I would preach at least one sermon on it. And the physicians began to explain what they saw in the death of Jesus. They began, if you will, in Luke chapter 22. You must know that Dr. Luke, the physician, was there with Jesus from beginning almost to the end. Luke chapter 22. The Bible has to say here that there were certain physiological signs that Jesus was in trouble as he began to face the specter of Calvary. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The physician starts by saying that this phenomenon called hematidrosis is when blood hemorrhages into the tiny blood vessels of the body. So that instead of perspiration coming through the pores as normal, blood mingles in the vessels with perspiration. So that when the face begins to have droplets on it, they are not clear droplets. They are bloody droplets. So even in Gethsemane, having gone through that last supper, you remember when they began to dip into, the, into that little sauce that they shared, the herbs, and there was one hand that came down with Christ's. Remember who it was? It was one Iscariot, Judas. And he dipped in. Jesus locked eyes with him. And the question didn't have to be spoken, but it was. Jesus had walked for months and years, trusting in these twelve. But one of them thought he was so worldly wise that he could go make a deal with the enemies of Christ. Some scholars believe that he thought if he pushed Jesus into a situation which was impossible, Jesus would have to show his power. Jesus doesn't need your help to be God. And so he sold his master, took those pieces of silver, and as Jesus looked into his eyes, in fact, one of my favorite writers says that the moment that was most telling was when Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet. There was no servant that day when they went to the upper room. There should have been, but there wasn't. No disciple was humble enough to get on his knees and wash anybody's feet. So Jesus took the towel 
and knelt down and washed their feet. You remember Peter said no, but when Jesus said, look, if you don't let me do that, you can't make it. He said, then wash my feet and my head, wash me all over. You can talk about Peter if you want to, but he knew how to make an adjustment midstream. Some of us are so proud that we will never change. Jesus comes now to the feet of Judas and takes his foot in his hand. And that writer favorite of mine says that a shock went up his leg. And there he felt the love of Christ. Not an electric shock. It was a love shock. And when it came to his heart and to his head, he didn't know what to do. And so he fought because had he not fought, he would have surrendered and his plans would have changed. Because when Jesus touches you, even your feet, something changes inside him. He had to fight it off. And he was in danger of being saved until he got up. And let me tell you something. I want to be straight with you. Jesus will come and touch every one of you. He'll do it before this sermon is over. And you've got a choice. You can let him keep his hands on you. And his touch will change you or you can pull away. The only way you'll be able to resist him is to get up and walk away. Because if you stay where Jesus is, I promise you that nothing will be the same. He has that power. So, so Jesus is in Gethsemane. The disciples look at him and he frightens them. They have never seen anything like it. There are dots of blood on his face that face that they loved to behold and they wonder what's wrong but presently you know there wasn't much time between those moments and when the guards came and they came and judas went to put a a kiss what a terrible kiss there are christians who kiss like There are Christians who smile like that. And as Jesus went up and allowed him to kiss, the soldiers came and took him. Peter takes out his sword. Sometimes Peter does exactly what I think I would have done. And if you think Peter was aiming at that God's ear, you don't understand Peter. Peter missed. I think he was headed for right about here. He missed and got an ear. And even in the midst of his trial, Jesus puts the ear back. Nobody pays much attention to that. But even when you are against him, even when you have sold him out, even when you come to arrest him, even when you are about to accomplish his death, Jesus is still in healing mode. He does it that way. Now here is what happens. Let's, let's look carefully. The fact is, that Jesus goes from one judge to another. He went first to the Jewish judges, Annas, Caiaphas, then the religious Sanhedrin. From one o'clock in the morning to sunrise, he walks from one courthouse to another, but there's not one right sentence issued. In fact, at sunrise, he is probably at the political Sanhedrin, where they convict him again of blasphemy, when he was convicted by the religious Sanhedrin, here is what the leaders of the Jewish church did. 
they put on him symbols that represented kingship then they blindfolded him they filled their mouths with saliva and spat on him then with their fists they beat his face trying their best to disfigure him because even with all of their power they couldn't take anything from him he was more powerful under their presumed power than he ever was so he already had one beating when they turned him loose and when he went to the political sanhedrin they convicted him again now he comes to those those roman judges he goes first to pontius pilate who says no i it's nothing wrong with him they take him to herod the tetrarch of galilee and this man says well i don't know what to do and finally when the crowd continues to scream and and you must listen to me never never trust the majority you got to find out what the majority is doing there are some people who spend their lives following the majority everything they do they check the wind to see which way the majority is going too many politicians check the wind to see which way the wind is blowing when right ought to be the sign that you follow but when he could find nothing wrong the people in their crowd began to chant crucify crucify there is every reason to believe that the devil mingled imps in the crowd distributed devils demons in the crowd and they were the ones who precipitated the chant can you see some wrinkled faced imp starting quietly crucify 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 and here are people who claim to know god who begin to chant what they hear instead of what they know the of God's people is not so much the devil we know what he's gonna do it's people who claim to be God's people who chant things because they hear it so the chant begins to spread and all of a sudden even the leaders of the Jewish church are crying out crucify him crucify him crucify him and in order to make the people go away this this terrible Roman judge says do what you will i wash my hands of it but take him now comes the problem the scourging was death it was not the cross it was the scourging the fact is that this was accomplished by people who were known as lictors they would have something that was had a handle and and unequal lengths of leather sometimes twined or braided sometimes just simply hanging on their own in the ends of some of those leather lengths were iron balls to give weight to that scourge then there were broken teeth of sheep in other lengths so that when the iron balls gave weight the teeth would cut into the skin they would hang the person who was about to be scourged tie him at the top of a of a long wooden distance 
and strip him of all of his clothes. Then either one or two lictors would take turns making an inverted V on his back. So one would come down this way on this side of his back going down. The other would come down this way on the other side of his back going down. They would start at the nape of the neck and come all the way past the buttocks, cutting open the skin with the scourge. They were supposed to only do it 39 times, but even the Bible says that they would go further than this because they wanted the life of this man who claimed so much power, claimed to be the Son of God. So on the second time that they came by, these terrible leather lengths went underneath the skin that had been cut. And they started going into the skeletal muscles. They would pull flesh from underneath the cut skin so that when they came down the second time, coming down the same way, in the same wounds, the flesh of the Son of God was torn away and then he was left at a moment when he was almost dead but here's my experience the power moment the Bible says with his stripes Jesus for he stood there and let him do it because he knew every time they hit him there was a fountain filled with blood being filled up a reservoir of healing power so that no matter how deep my sin may be every time they put a scar on his back they gave more power to save me from my sin with his stripes I am here I'm sorry that they beat my Jesus like that but I'm glad I am here by the stripes they put on his back every time the devil says that I can't make it I point back to the stripes I say I'm here by the stripes you put on him so you were dumb to do what you did because you filled up a fountain and today I am saved by his blood and by his stripes what they had done before they had taken those two to four inch those those thorns twined them together put them on his head Remember that his skin was already fragile and thin. Blood had already oozed through it. They pressed it down on his head. And then they took the stick that they put in his hand as a scepter and beat it on his thorns. Drove them deeper into the skin of his face. He was already stained by blood that had oozed through his skin because of the trauma of the suffering. Now the thorns dig into his skin. And then they take him from that place, wrap a garment around him, taunt him, spit on him, beat him, 
dogs ran beside him and as they ran they talked about his parentage somebody made a cruel joke about his mother who claimed that she had a virgin birth and I don't know the names that they might have called him in their language but what they said was you don't really have a daddy can you imagine what God must have felt they're telling his son he doesn't have a daddy God could have grabbed the earth and hurled it somewhere. But because God so loved the world, he allowed it to continue. So now, having wrapped Jesus again, they put upon him the cross. There is dissension now. I know most of you have seen the movie. I finally saw it. And I know that they have the tall cross completely on the back of Jesus. The American Medical Association disagrees. They say that the, uh, the vertical part of the cross was in place. And that it was only the patibulum, the horizontal part of the cross, that weighed from 75 to 125 pounds that they bent him over and put it across his neck. And then tied his hands to it. Let me tell you. If Jesus could have stopped being human, he would have walked that thing forever. He'd ask him, where's the rest of the cross? Is this all you got? But he could not carry the cross as God. He had to carry it as a man. He had had a ministry that involved walking, so Jesus was in great physical condition. Everywhere he went, he walked. In fact, from 9 o'clock on Thursday night to 9 o'clock on Friday morning, he had gone without food, without water, without sustenance, and he had only been betrayed and, and beaten, and, and everything that you can imagine had happened to him. And, and this is the human being upon whom they put this, this, this patibulum. And humanity carries it for a long time, attesting to his physical fitness. Yes. There are some people who see Jesus as some wispy little genderless figure. It's not my Jesus. I, I believe that when they put it on him, his muscles rippled. He had worked with his father in a carpenter shop. He did not make birdhouses. They carried the wood from one place to another, sometimes over two hours just to get to the place where they worked. And then they built houses. So when you saw Jesus walk, you did not see somebody who looked like he was vulnerable. In fact, every man who could have seen Jesus, if it had not been that God did not want his physical appearance to draw us, if God had not made it so that we did not become drawn by his physical appearance, Jesus would have been so muscular that every man would have wanted to be like him. He would have been so handsome that every woman would have swooned when she saw him. But he's, he's, in Isaiah it says he had no form of comeliness. God didn't want you to follow Jesus because of what it looked like. He wanted you to follow him because of his love. So he was built so that you didn't follow him because of that. 
However, I'm telling you that he carried that thing until human power could do no more. That was this black man. I apologize to everyone who cannot take immediate pride in the fact that he's black. Just come on and experience the power anyway. I posit to you that if Simon had looked weak, they would never have chosen him. So he must have been a real black man. Listen, 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 listen. It takes a real man to be able to express sensitivity. If you have questions about your gender, you can never shed a tear. You can never be touched. You got to always be strong and macho. But if you're a real man, you can, if you cry, you're still a man. A man crying. If you show sympathy, you're still a man. So this man showed sympathy and the Roman soldiers saw it and they saw he was powerfully built, no doubt, and saw that he had, was in sympathy so that you come here. He didn't volunteer. Let's don't, let's don't make it better than it is. But they called him and Simon carries the cross and when he, when he carries it, it changes him. You can't carry the cross and stay the same. There's reason to believe that his whole family was changed because he bore the cross. And Jesus is taken to the place called Golgotha. There they, they take his garments, rip them off his back. The blood has cemented the cloth to his back. So it, they tear it off. They throw him down on the ground so that now the dirt, the blood-stained dirt of Golgotha, where many have died and their dried blood is caked in the earth. So there's no reason to think that every de diseased particle, everything that could bring him illness is there and they press him down and stretch him. His hands, those hands that had touched fevered brows and the fever disappeared. Those hands that had mingled spittle with clay and just put it on somebody's eye. And the man says, I can see but it's not real clear. He says, let me get it one more time. He puts it on again and says, I, I see, I see clearly now. Those hands that had touched that funeral beer you remember that widow who came out with her son? Jesus and his crowd met them. One crowd shouting for joy, one crowd mourning for sadness. And all of a sudden the cacophony of sound comes together. Jesus stops all the noise. Those same hands go over and say, lady, let me take care of this. And he touches that dead boy and he gets up. So now the two crowds are making the same noise because the funeral has been turned into a shouting brigade and they all sing the praises of Jesus together. Those hands, those hands, they stretch now. 
There's every reason to believe that the Romans had physicians to find the place. It was not according to the American Medical Association in the palm. I really, I don't have a problem. It doesn't matter where they put the nail. It just matters that he died. They say it was here. They say that the physicians from the Romans would find the exact place where the median nerve was. The median nerve, when touched and traumatized, radiates a burning sensation up the arm and into the chest. And they put it there, a five to seven inch square cut spike. And they beat it next to the median nerve. If it severs the median nerve, the hand will be forced into paralysis like a claw. So it could be that the hand of Jesus, the median nerve being severed, was paralyzed into a claw-like place. But they stretched him there. Then they take his feet and put them together on top of each other and pound a spike there. They go to a nerve in the feet. And then they pull that thing up and drop him. And there he is. The doctors say that Hanging on that cross, insects would find the places in the back that were cut open and begin to burrow into the wounds. They would get around his eyes and burrow into his eyes. He could feel the pain of insects that had been made by his own hand, burrowing now into his own flesh, but he could not wipe them away. In fact, even when they offered him an analgesic, wine and gall, he put it away because he knew that unless he drank the dregs of suffering he could not save Walter Pearson and so he would not accept the painkiller because he had to save me now let me move quickly because here is I think the worst part there are many there are many things said about how he died but here's what I believe one of the things that happened was when he was hung on the cross legs twisted weight on his hand his diaphragm is pulled up so the problem with breathing is that he can't exhale easily so his breathe his breathing is shallow in order to exhale he's got to push up In fact, some people died on the cross because they could never exhale. So they were asphyxiated. Asphyxiated by not being able to breathe. And if Jesus said anything from the cross, like, Father, forgive him. <laughs> For they know not what they do. even when he came to the very end into thy hand I commend my spirit and at three in the afternoon on an ugly Friday his head fell 
when the Roman guards came to break his legs to make sure he was dead, they saw that he was gone. A six-foot spear was plunged into his side. Water and blood came out. And here's what the doctors say. It was either from hypovolemic shock, which means you don't have enough blood. Blood! It's too low! And your heart struggles to find enough blood to pump. Or it's some strange arrhythmia that is the heart's reaction trying to save you. So it's either that he has hypovolemic shock or exhaustion asphyxia. But the blood and the water say that it could have been some intervening instant event that caused him to die in three to six hours instead of the days that he could have stayed there because the Jewish leaders wanted to take him down before the Sabbath came. So some physicians say that it may have been a rupture of the heart. A heart rupture that would have allowed pleural fluid from the lungs to seep into the pericardial sac or that the heart itself produced water because of its trauma and when that spear went in blood and water came out signifying that it was his heart that broke for you If I were God and I saw my daughter, my firstborn, in an electric chair, in a gas chamber, lying on a gurney where you would put into her veins some poison that would kill her. If I had the power to save her, even if you would die, my daughter would get up because that's how I love her if my son were about to be executed even if you would die my son would be saved because that's my son but God loved you so much that God and all the holy angels put on darkness like overcoats gathered darkness to them and met down at the cross so God the Father and all the holy angels dressed in darkness came not to take Jesus down. He had to die in my place. So God didn't come to snatch him from the cross. He just came to stand with him as he died in my place because it was God's intent also that I die. Listen to me. The reason why I have preached here for all of these nights. The reason why I've said things that may not have gone along with what your perception might have been. The reason why I would rather say it like the Bible says than like all the other folks seem to say it. The reason why I would forsake anything, I would forego any privilege just to be able to read it from the word and declare it as best I know it in truth. The reason is because Jesus loved us so much that he died not only that our sins might be forgiven but that we might have another opportunity to do what the Bible says yes, 
Today I'm going to do something different. There are people from around the world who have emailed us and called us and they have said, Preacher, when can I be baptized? I've never seen it like that before. There are people who have been waiting since the second or third night of our meeting to get the opportunity to be baptized. And, and let me be very careful with you. I'm going to do something that many people don't do. They try to make baptism calls all emotional. I don't believe they ought to be so. I believe that you ought to be able to think your way into the baptismal pool. Because if your brain took you, your emotions can catch up with your brain. Your emotions ought not lead in this process. You ought to be convinced intellectually before you are moved emotionally. There ought to be a basis for what you do. You ought to be able to make an informed decision to follow Jesus. So today I'm about to call for anybody who is willing to follow whatever the Bible says. Last night I preached about it. God is calling for this time since 1798, since 1844. God has put in place a plan that calls for people who will do whatever he says whenever he says it. I am tired of people claiming the name of Jesus, but they won't do this and they won't do that. They'll follow Jesus for part of the way, but not all of the way. It's time for somebody to stand up for Jesus. Everybody else in our society has come out of the closet except Christians. Today I'm going to call for three categories of people. I'm going to call for somebody who is willing to do whatever Jesus says, anything in this book you're willing to do by his grace, because you can't do it by yourself. I'm going to call for people who have 